Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for over 26 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of today's program. We invite those of you who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public. Information on upcoming speakers can be found online at eWestminster.org. It is now my pleasure to welcome the third speaker in our spring series. Bill McKibben is an author and environmentalist whose writings offer creative solutions to some of the most troubling issues of our day, overconsumption, diminishing resources, global warming, economic disparity, and the decline of communities. He's a former staff writer for The New Yorker and a frequent contributor to Harper's, The Atlantic Monthly, The New York Review of Books, and Sierra Magazine. Mr. McKibben lives in Vermont and is a visiting scholar in residence at the Department of Environmental Studies at Middlebury College. He's the author of 10 books, including The End of Nature, published nearly 20 years ago. He's recognized today as one of the earliest voices to sound the alarm on global warming. In his newest book, Deep Economy, The Wealth of Communities and the Durable Future, Mr. McKibben challenges our understanding of progress and the good life and calls for a shift in focus from globalization to rebuilding local communities. In his book, he asks a question often neglected by economists, what is the economy for? And he envisions a mature economics that takes seriously human satisfaction and societal durability. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Bill McKibben. Well, thank you all. It is a great pleasure to be here. It's always a great pleasure to be in Minnesota, beacon of progress to the nation, and also to be in this gorgeous church. Now, I feel a little overawed in it. Um, I'm a Methodist myself in sort of backwoods churches where I've spent my life, uh, four or five of which would fit in this sanctuary nicely. And um, I've never risen very far in the Methodist hierarchy. Um, Sunday school teachers about as good as I've gotten. And you know that means you spend most of your time in church down in the basement with the felt board putting the apostles in correct order and things. And I think most Sunday school teachers suffer from a little bit of pulpit envy. Um, so I may be up here a little while. You may have a hard time getting me out of this grand pose. You know, this new book of mine, Deep Economy, may in a sense be a few years ahead of its time. Um, I have a little experience with that. The End of Nature, which came out in 1989, was the first book for a general audience about climate change. And it's really only now, about 18 years later, that the political system is finally beginning to really engage seriously with this most fundamental of issues, something I'll get to in a little while. But I hope it won't be quite as long before the topic of this book becomes common discourse in, um, in our politics 
and in our lives because I think that the question that it raises is a pretty central and important one. And the question is whether or not the default assumption of our society and of our economy that more is better and that economic growth is the obvious aim of all our institutions, whether or not that default assumption is as obvious as we sometimes think it is. If you have any doubts that that is the kind of underlying idea in our society, tune in almost any night to the newscast when the perfectly objective and neutral newscaster will nonetheless, when they reach the economic news, say something like, good news on the economic front today, uh, the gross national product increased another 3%. They'll never say, bad news on the economic front today, housing starts are up 12% or something, even though almost everyone um, looking around them has some reason at some level to doubt whether another 12% you know, increase in the number of homes on the landscape is an unalloyed blessing. Even the words we use to describe the economy underscore our incredible tenderness toward its condition. The economy sometimes is ailing. Um, the economy has suffered a setback. In, in happier times, the economy is in recovery. We, we shower more tenderness on this abstract idea than we do really on the physical world for of which it's a subset, a physical world that we take most of the time more or less for granted. Why is that? Why? that deep devotion to expansion and growth? Well, in part because in the past it's worked for us pretty well. It wasn't that long ago in American history that most Americans weren't particularly affluent. Um, um, when our story had as much to do with, with privation as it did with prosperity. I've been reading my daughter uh, as I'm sure many of you have over the years, those sort of Ur-American texts, the Little House on the Prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder books. And, you know, they describe an America rich in family and rich in community, but quite poor in material things. Uh, Christmas comes and perhaps there's a penny or a stick of candy or a rag doll. And it's easy to imagine why in that kind of world an increase in prosperity would have seemed like a great benefit and indeed it was. And you can still feel that deeply when you travel to those many parts of the world that haven't undergone the sort of economic expansion that we have. One of the things that I write about in this book, Deep Economy, several times are my recent experiences in China where I've gone to do some reporting for National Geographic and other places. And I was remembering the other day um, a, a factory where I spent a few days, a, a shower curtain factory um, north of Beijing, a few hours. And you know, all the people working in that factory were really between the ages of 18 and 22. It was like, much like the college where I teach, Middlebury, except that instead of taking classes, people were making shower curtains. Um, it was not a particularly Dickensian place, and for most of the people there, it obviously represented an advance over the great hardship of their rural life. I remember walking into the, um, the girls' dorms, and they were living 
four to a room in bunk beds, and most of the bunk beds had stuffed animals on them. So a little bit later, when I was making small talk with a young woman that I was interviewing, I asked her if she had a stuffed animal. And the minute I asked the question, I knew it had been the wrong thing to say because her eyes filled up with tears. Now, she was 19. She said, you know, I like stuffed animals an awful lot, but I've never had one. Um, every penny I make has to go back home because we're trying to get my brother through school and my parents are, are sick and that's what, that's what I do here. Well, needless to say, before the day was out, she had the largest stuffed animal in that corner of China. She was delighted, so were all the other young people at that factory for her. It was very sweet to see. But it made me reflect on, you know, my own daughter who likes stuffed animals too rather a lot. But the biodiversity of beanie babies in her room sort of rivals that of the Peruvian Amazon. Um, she's reached the point long since when one more represents very little. And the terms an economist would use, its marginal utility is small. The point of all of this is to say that where once we lived in Little House on the Prairie, now we live in Big House on the cul-de-sac. And as we've made that transition, the time has come to think more deeply and more clearly than we are about whether or not what we needed once is what we need still. Especially because there are two reasons, I think, to take seriously the idea that perhaps our current model isn't working the way that it should. The first and more obvious one is the ecological impact of this um, unabated expansion and growth, which is, by the way, intimately linked with the use of fossil fuels. Human economies only really began to grow in the early 18th century with the discovery of how to harness the power of coal. Until that time, the great economist Keynes once reckoned, for all of human history, it was possible that the kind of average standard of living had only doubled over all those thousands of years. But once we liberated that power of fossil fuel, we were off and running. And still, our economic expansion is closely tied to the combustion of, of fossil fuel. If you have any doubt about that, um, read only the remarks, say, of our president explaining why we can't do anything seriously, in his opinion, to tackle global warming. Because any restriction, as he says, on the use of coal and gas and oil would necessarily uh, uh, lead to a slowdown in economic growth. Global warming is the most serious problem that human civilization has yet faced. As I say, I wrote the first book about it a long time ago, so I've been following it for a long time. And I'm not going to belabor you today with all the kind of background and um, everything on climate change. If you haven't gotten it by this point, after Hurricane Katrina, after Al Gore's movie An Inconvenient Truth, after two decades of strong scientific background, then there may be some sort of ideological thing that is keeping you from getting it, and I'm unlikely to be able to remove it in the course of a few minutes today. Suffice it to say that what has changed in the last 20 years is only our understanding that this phenomenon is happening more speedily and more profoundly than we would have guessed two decades ago. So far, human beings have raised the temperature of the planet about one degree Fahrenheit. 
20 years ago, we would have said that that would mark just the threshold of kind of observable global warming and that larger effects were probably still another degree and another decade or two down the road. But it turns out that the early models underestimated the fine, how finely balanced the planet was and how easy it would be to start tipping it in remarkable ways. That may be most easily observable in the world's cryosphere, its frozen portions, all of which are melting, and some of which are melting in ways that have caused scientists long worried and even alarmed about these questions to begin to speak in almost panicked tones about them. Um, last year around this time, America's foremost climatologist, James Hansen of NASA, uh, a federal employee, defied a gag order from the White House and gave a speech at the American Geophysical Union uh, outlining his reasons for thinking that we were in worse trouble than we had earlier imagined. He said at that time that according to his modeling, we had about 10 years in order to reverse the flow of carbon into the atmosphere, to stop putting more in and start putting less in, or else, as he put it, we would live on a totally different planet. The best estimate now is that without remarkable change quickly, we will raise the temperature of this Earth an additional five degrees Fahrenheit in the course of this century. That's not the worst case scenario, that's the middle case scenario. Um, that will make it warmer than it's been for a very, very long time, likely warmer than it's been since before the beginning of primate evolution. So a very different world. One way of saying this is plan A, the idea that we're going to go on in precisely the path that we are, and that all the rest of the world is going to develop along our lines seems remarkably unlikely. And the sooner we get off that particular plan and figure out another one, the better our chances of being able to avert at least some of the damage that's coming. We will not avert it all. There is no way at this date to prevent global warming, but there may still be margin for the prevention of all out catastrophe that's what we're talking about. The second problem with our culture of endless fixation on economic growth is less obvious and in a sense more interesting. This is the question, and profound question it is, whether or not that increased individual and societal prosperity is actually making us as happy as it claims to. Economists have long taken that as a kind of assumption not something that they studied because in part it was difficult to study. And anyway, their notion was that the idea of utility sufficed to encompass it, the idea that you could tell what made someone happy by what they bought. Okay. In the last few years, more and more academics, including economists, have begun to try to research that question more deeply, have begun to try to figure out whether or not it's possible to ask people directly how satisfied they are and have that answer mean anything. People would assume that probably you couldn't, that it would just be a kind of throwaway question, but in fact, a great deal of research over the last 10 years in behavioral economics and other fields has led us to think that subjective well-being is actually quite a robust phenomenon. 
Once you have that idea in mind, then you can ask very subversive questions about what's been going on in this country in the last few generations. For instance, one polling firm has asked Americans every year since the end of World War II whether or not they were happy with their lives. The number of Americans who say that they are very happy peaks in 1956 and goes slowly but steadily downhill since. I find that annoying because I was born in 1960, so I missed whatever good time was uh, underway. What's weird about that downward curve is that in that same 50 years, our level of individual prosperity has about tripled. We have more square footage, more cars, more vacations, more appliances, more everything. If the things that we think are true about the economy really were true, those curves should move in at least somewhat the same direction. That instead they diverge opens up very fascinating questions about what on earth is going on. And that to, do, to the degree that we can tell what's going on, the answer seems to be not merely that, it's, that economic growth is not sufficing to make us happier, but that indeed there may be things inherent in some of that endless affluence that in fact are making us somewhat less happy. Most importantly, and this really jumps out from the data when you look at it, most importantly, Americans' sense of deep loss of social connection and community over that same period. Think about what happened in the beginning of the 1950s. As we entered this period of unprecedented prosperity and growth, we used an awful lot of that money, what? To move to the suburbs and to build bigger houses. To, and of course, to acquire the first of the set of screens into which we've peered assiduously for the last 50 years. We made it mathematically less likely that in the course of a day we would run into other people that we would have social interactions with those around us. And the results are quite interesting. On average, Americans have something like half as many close friends as they did 50 years ago. That's a pretty big drop in a pretty important indicator. And perhaps it turns out to be an indicator maybe even more important than the ones we're used to measuring, like GNP. This trend toward a kind of hyper-individualism um, that's the, the sort of centerpiece of our consumer society uh, edges all the, all the time ever closer to some combination of tragedy and farce. Uh, you may have seen two weeks ago in the newspaper an interesting story about how the new trend in upscale housing in this country is the construction of dual master bedrooms because husbands and wives now find it difficult to sleep in the same room. Somebody snores or someone pulls off the blankets or whatever it is. We've gone about as far from Little House on the Prairie as it's possible to get. That hyper-individualism, which we've taken to be a sort of good thing, this real focus on each one of ourselves, may turn out to be, as every spiritual tradition that we know about suggests, not actually what we were built for. We may be more complicated than that. 
Um, um, and if we are, if, in the immortal words of Bill Clinton, it's not the economy stupid, it's the be-all and end-all of human enterprise, then we have some interesting thinking that we need to do. And quickly, since the ecological, the physical, chemical peril that we're in looms over us all the time, giving us less margin than we would like for a sort of long, slow rethinking of our problem. That's the bad news. The good news, I think, is that it seems to me at least possible that the solutions to these twin dilemmas lie in more or less the same direction. And that is in reorienting the trajectory of our economic life much more toward the local to spend the coming century reeling in some of the supply lines that we spent the last century tossing out. The twin gifts of a more localized economy are that they use less energy and that they build more community. And you can begin to see that from any number of examples. The most advanced part so far of our relocalizing economy is in the area of food. Local farmers markets are actually the fastest growing part of our food economy in this country. Sales are growing 10 or 12% a year. Their number doubles every five or six years around the country. That's important for environmental reasons because you use a lot less energy if you eat close to home. I mean, our current industrial agricultural model basically has most of us ordering takeout from 2,000 miles away every night of the year. That's how far the average bite of food travels before it reaches our lips. And it does that at a high energy cost. I live back east. If I want to eat lettuce this time of year, it comes from the Central Valley of California. To bring one calorie of that lettuce, to grow it and to transport it to where I live, takes about 36 calories of fossil energy. That's not a good ratio if one's interested in dealing seriously with any of the physical problems I've described. And of course, at the end of it, all you're left with is a kind of piece of fairly limp lettuce anyway, you know. Having traveled 1,500 miles this week, I can tell you what I feel like, and that's more or less what the lettuce feels like. But the attraction of that good food is only one of the reasons that people like to visit the farmer's market, whether they're in cities or suburbs or out in the country. The biggest reason, I think, is that it's a qualitatively different experience than shopping at the supermarket. A few years ago, a pair of sociologists followed shoppers, first at the supermarket and then at the farmer's market. You all have been to the supermarket. You know how it works. You walk in, you fall into a light trance, you visit the stations of the cross around the supermarket, you emerge with the same basket of items somehow that you had the week before, and you have the really interesting conversation about paper or plastic on the way out the door. When they followed people around the farmer's market, they had 10 times more conversations in the course of the visit. 10 times. An order of magnitude, more community being created, even as something like an order of magnitude, less energy was being used. And you begin to sense the possibility for leveraging some of these systems enough to make a difference with problems like climate change. You can make the same 
um, argument with almost every commodity in our lives. For instance, energy, which at the moment we consume in much the same way we do food, from a few huge centralized business operations that ExxonMobil or Peabody Coal or whoever it is that are the suppliers of BTUs and electrons in our lives and send them out to us to consume. Much the way that big you know, TV networks send out entertainment for us to consume. It needn't be that way. You could have an energy system that worked much more like the internet works. Uh, I have solar panels on my roof. Uh, uh, when the sun comes out, we're tied into the grid. So my electric meter merrily spins backwards and I fire electrons down the line to other people who need them. My neighbor's refrigerator runs off the sun on my shingles. When the cloud passes over, I suck energy back down that tube like everyone else. You can imagine how, as that grows more and more, our energy system will become not only more ecologically benign, but far more durable and resilient than the one we have now. A system that depends on, say, our ability to manage the politics of far off Middle Eastern nations where we have very little uh, 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 record of success along those lines. Even culture, soft, ephemeral commodities like, say, music, uh, or uh, are, are subject to the same kind of argument. We think of them as coming from a distance from Hollywood and Nashville, but you know that's a relatively modern development. Um, one of the statistics that I came across in the course of researching deep economy stuck in my mind. In 1900, at the turn of the century, the state of Iowa had 1,300 opera houses, okay? 1,300 local music venues. Nobody was getting rich like Whitney Houston gets rich, and nobody was hearing the absolute greatest singer in the whole world, the way that we can now if we you know, plug into uh, those sort of entertainment networks. On the other hand, there were a lot of people making part of their living in the arts, and everybody was hearing what they heard in the company of their neighbors in a kind of rich social context that probably offered at least as much delight as the solipsistic cocoon represented by the white earbuds dangling around the neck. Those of you listening today on radio are perfect examples of what I'm talking about. Public radio as a business model in our conventional economic world is about as stupid a thing as you could come up with. You give away your product and Twice a year, you go on the air and hector people to send you a check for something that they would get for free anyway. Now, any you know, business school in America would tell you this could not possibly work and, and flunk you out for even suggesting it. And yet, it's the fastest growing part of our radio enterprise as people try to leave behind the kind of clear channel and infinity and all the other station organizations that have taken over most of our radio dial in the name of greater profit. Let me end by describing a final example of this that uh, in our political life, one that connects a few of the themes that I've been trying to get at today. As I say, I've spent most of my life pretty concerned about climate change. Pretty concerned and pretty despairing about how little was being done. Sometime last summer, that despair reached a kind of new low. 
uh, you know, we'd had Hurricane Katrina, we'd had Al Gore in his movie, people were educated and yet still nothing was happening. There was nothing in Washington to indicate that we were about to take any steps at all. In that despair, I called up a few of my friends in Vermont and said, look, let's do something, anything. Let's walk up to Burlington, our main city, and sit in on the steps of the federal building and get arrested. And maybe some, someone will write a story about it or something will happen. At least we will have done something to you know, justify our existence in this time. They are, you know, being slightly crazy like me, they all said, okay, and we'll go along. But one of them happily called up and asked the Burlington Police Department what would happen if we did this. And the Burlington Police Department said, well, nothing will happen. You can sit on the steps till the end of time and that's just fine with us. Um, they more or less implied that we would need to burn down the federal building. Um, and the carbon emissions alone make that, you know, an un unsavory idea. So instead, we kind of reorganized and in the course of about three weeks planned this sort of pilgrimage across the state. Uh, we took five days of walking, and by the time we got to Burlington, there were a thousand people marching, which for Vermont is actually a lot of people. Um, um, it was the biggest political de demonstration of any kind in Vermont for a very long time, and it had uh, a tonic effect on this issue in our state. All our candidates for Congress and Senate came to the final rally that we had, um, and all of them pledged to uh, sign on to this very ambitious target of 80% cuts by 2050 in carbon emissions. The woman who was running for Congress on the Republican ticket, who two months before had said in her announcement speech that she wasn't sure that global warming was real and that more research was needed, it turned out that the research that was needed was how many people would walk across Vermont in order to demand some change. And, you know, Bless your heart, that's exactly how our system's supposed to work, you know. Well, the only depressing part was to wake up the next morning and read the newspaper and see in the story the fact that this was the largest demonstration about climate change that had yet taken place in the United States. Which seemed to me, in a sense, the kind of scales fell from my eyes and I began to understand why so little progress had been made. We have all the kind of elements of a movement around this most crucial of human rights and environmental issues. We have the scientists and the economists and the engineers and the policy people. All the movement except the movement part, except people actually demanding change. So we decided to see this winter if we could replicate on a national scale some of that success. When I say we, I mean me and six students who had graduated from Middlebury College in the preceding six months. Um, that was it, and we had no money, and we had no organization, but we set up a website on January 10th, and we, it's called stepitup07.org, and we said to people, please, in your communities, organize rallies on April 14th in order to ask for this same 80% reduction from your congresspeople. We didn't know what to expect, but we hoped that if we worked really hard, we might be able to organize 100 of these rallies by the time April 14th rolled around, which would have been about 100 more than there had been before. As it turns out, no thanks to us, thanks to the deep desire of Americans to do something, all those people who had put in the new light bulb and while they were doing it sort of thought to themselves, hmm, this might not be solving the problem altogether, you know. 
people have responded in unbelievable ways. I checked the website before I came in here. We're about to pass the 1100 rally mark for April 14th. And this is every kind of community, evangelical congregations and sorority chapters and universities and retirement homes and on and on and on. There are many of them scattered around Minnesota and you can find out details at that stepitup07.org website. The point I wanna make to sort of draw it back to this discussion of local economies is only this. When we were starting, a lot of people said the way you do this is you have a march on Washington. That's how it's done, you know? We knew we couldn't do that. We lacked the skill and the money to organize such a thing. We didn't want hundreds of thousands of Americans coming across the continent spewing carbon behind them as they went. And we figured it was more important anyway to let people take this stand at home in the places that mattered to them where they could begin to demonstrate some of the reasons that they were upset about the prospect of the planet burning up. And the creativity with which people have responded moves me near to tears every time I log onto the website. There are gonna be teams of people scuba diving for an underwater demonstration off the coral reefs on the Florida Keys that will not be there in 50 years if that water keeps warming. There are gonna be people holding hands along the levees in New Orleans, our first witnesses really to the destructive power of the new world we are creating. There are going to be thousands of people wearing blue t-shirts crowding into lower Manhattan to form a sea of people to demonstrate where the tide will come once the sea level begins to really rise. There'll be skiers in formation down the dwindling glaciers of the Rockies and the Sierras in Glacier National Park, which will need a new name in 20 years because those glaciers won't be there anymore. On church steps and in city parks and all across America. And the point is, that we live in an era, all of a sudden, because of technological change, especially the internet, where we can begin to do things in that local way, where we can embed ourselves in the deep, humanly satisfying local economies and communities that we need, and at the same time, still participate in the larger world, where local no longer need imply parochial or closed in or marinated in old prejudice or anything else, where the window is always open to the rest of the world. My old metaphor for that used to be to think about how nice it was to be able to trade recipes across the internet and not have to move the ingredients around, you know, that the ideas were a lot easier to ship than the commodities. But now the thing that really makes me understand it is to see people being able to bring their deepest wishes for their own community and their deepest wishes for the world into easy congruence. None of what I've described today to my mind, is either liberal or conservative. A local economy and a farmer's market is neither a liberal nor a conservative plot. It's something different. One of my neighbors in Vermont, a wonderful fellow who runs an institution called the Farmer's Diner, that serves diner food at diner prices, but all of it comes from within 50 miles of the kitchen. He printed up a bunch of bumper stickers not long ago that said, think globally, act neighborly.
It seems to me that that's a deeply subversive message for our moment. There I end. Thank you. Thank you, Bill McKibben. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Church and the moderator of today's forum. Our speaker today is author and environmentalist Bill McKibben. While the ushers collect questions from the audience here at Westminster, I would like to thank our many supporters, especially today the Mortensen Company, the nation's leading builder of wind turbines, for making today's forum possible. We invite you to the Westminster Town Hall Forum on Thursday, April 19th, when Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong joins us for his presentation, Jesus for the Non-Religious. More information on our spring series is available online at eWestminster.org. And now, Mr. McKibben, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. How do you respond to those who say that the dire predictions of global warming are mere hyperbole? I respond by saying that I wish it were so. Um, nothing would have given me more pleasure than to have been proved wrong uh, about the book and the science behind the end of nature. Um, at the time that I wrote it, in 1989, it was on the order of a hypothesis. I thought a good one and a strong one, we knew that carbon dioxide, which is the inevitable byproduct of fossil fuel consumption, has a molecular structure that traps heat near the planet that would otherwise radiate back out to space. So it seemed logical and indeed seemed to be happening that that extra heat was accumulating in the atmosphere. On the other hand, it seemed emotionally counterintuitive that our species could have grown large enough to materially alter the most fundamental force on Earth, the climate. Um, and so it, you know, it was a very open question. Science went to work harder than it has ever gone to work on any similar problem. And by 1995, the world's climatologists, gathered together by the UN and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, concluded quite forthrightly that humans were heating up the planet and that it was going to be a serious problem. It was a, a coming of age moment, if you will, for us as a species. Since that time, it's as if the planet itself has peer-reviewed that science to make sure that it was correct. We have had 10 of the warmest years on record in the last decade, and the physical effects become more pronounced all the time. At the moment, the scariest new piece of data, and the thing that I think really is rattling more and more scientists, is probably our dawning understanding of what's happening on the huge ice sheets above Greenland and the West Antarctic. 20 years ago, we would have said it would take a very long time to melt those because there's a lot of inertia in a mile and a half thick sheet of ice. It's hard to figure out how you could get it to melt. The computer modeling assumed that warmer temperatures would melt a little snow on top and that that water would evaporate politely into the atmosphere. But it turns out those systems are deeply fissured and fractured and that that water, instead of evaporating, is flooding down to the bottom of those ice sheets and greasing their skids for the slide into the ocean. That acceleration is scary because Greenland alone 
has enough ice in it that if it melted, the world's sea level would rise about 25 feet, creating, in Jim Hansen's words, a totally different planet. There is no scientific debate left on the essential outlines of this predicament, although we won't know for a long time exactly how it's all going to play out. Maybe the scariest part of it is that we're running a complete experiment and we're running it in a test tube that comprises the entire Earth. Can you comment on the forces arrayed against you and your handful of Vermont students, ExxonMobil and other companies for whom carbon emissions maintain their business engine? You know, ExxonMobil, for instance, made more money last year than any company in the history of companies, $40 billion in profit. In our system, $40 billion buys you a lot of political influence. Um, you know, we're, I, I would wager that even if we gathered all the people listening on the radio today and combined all our sort of spare change, we'd still come up slightly short of $40 billion. Um, we're not going to be able to beat them that way. Um, I remember talking to John McCain about this a few years ago, interviewing him, and he's saying, what do you expect the Senate to do? We hear every day from uh, you know, the fossil fuel lobbyists telling us not to do anything, and we almost never hear from our constituents saying that this is an issue that they care about. Our effort is to see if we can make congressmen and congresswomen across the country understand that this is not a second-tier issue for their constituents, that it's a movement that's beginning to acquire some of the passion and urgency and willingness to sacrifice that marked the civil rights movement a generation ago. If we can't build that kind of movement, then the chances of being able to compete successfully with the Exxon Mobiles of the world are mighty small. Are you finding any voices in the business community that support your message regarding the economy? Yes. There are parts of the business community that are wising up and beginning to take at least a, a beginning step down this road. For instance, for a number of years now, the insurance industry has been the most uh, uh, convinced part of our economy because we assign them the task of analyzing risk, of looking at the future. Their technology, the actuarial table, it's a very powerful technology that's allowed a lot of what humans have done to happen. Those actuarial tables are completely based on the idea that the world in the future will perform as it is in the past, it has in the past. If you create a new world, then you can't underwrite it. You, no one has any experience with the world we're creating, which is why it's getting darn hard to get insurance if you live anywhere near the coast. That mood is spreading, especially in financial sectors of our economy. Uh, the real question is not if there's going to be a deal or not in the next three or four years. There is. The real question is on what terms will that deal happen? Most of the business community would like it to be as gentle a deal as possible with as slow and gradual a kind of phase-in of a new carbon-free economy as possible. If we had started 20 years ago, that would have been possible and it would have made sense. We no longer have that luxury, which is why we're trying to set the bar where it needs to be. That 80% reduction target in the next 40 years, which implies 2% reduction a year, really, you know, through the lifetimes of all of us in this room, is as low as it can be set, and it may not be enough. We don't know, but at least it will send some kind of price signal through the economy. 
several questions about uh, trading off some of the benefits of the global economy and globalization with the structure of a local economy. Can you comment on that? Sure. Um, you know, there are still many parts of the world where economic growth is, people live at a stage where economic growth is continuing to make their lives easier. And some of that has to continue in one form or another, which is why it's extremely important for us to learn how to back off somewhat uh, to start using less. And by using less, by the way, we don't mean going and living in a cave someplace, you know. Many people in this room and in this listening audience have been to Western Europe sometime in the last few years, to France, to Germany, to Italy. Because they've arranged their lives a little differently on this scale that runs from hyper-individualism on one end to community at the other, because they've been willing to say, pay the taxes to build good mass transit systems, and then to take those buses and trains once they're there, because of that, the average Western European uses half as much energy as the average American. That's a very good thing. It's a very big number. It's bigger than we're going to get out of hydrogen or you know, ethanol or any of the other kind of miracle things that we talk about. And it's all because people have a slightly different set of expectations out of the world. One of the big questions, therefore, for the next few decades is whether China and India will develop more in an American direction or a European one. The math of global warming and of other environmental problems will be hard to do in either case, but it'll be impossible to do if they take our way of life as the ultimate goal. When you present your thoughts about changing the assumptions about more is better to your college students, what kind of response do you get? Are they cynical or are they interested in challenging the prevailing economic model? Well, I may have a somewhat skewed perspective because Middlebury College, where I am, has emerged in recent years as perhaps the most environmentally active college in the country, and it's been very heartening to watch. But I think around the country, there's a burgeoning student movement around these issues, um, partly because students understand that they're going to live with the results of what we have done to their environment for a lot longer than the rest of us are going to have to. Um, I find that extremely heartening. Now, of course, there are plenty of people at any college in America whose main goal is to get out and make a lot of money. And it's especially easy to understand why that might be when one sees the debt loads that people stagger away from higher education with. But there is more and more and more, I think, commitment to thinking interestingly about the future. And it's for those who are sort of worried that students have descended into a kind of cynical apathy, the good news is that there's a lot happening. And that those students who are involved in things are, unlike the kind of student activists of my day, much more action than talk, you know? Um, there's less sort of grand philosophizing about how the world should be, and more hard work about, uh, you know, students that, my college have helped Vermonters change 100,000 light bulbs. They go regularly to our state capital to lobby. They're involved in national, international things um, all the time. It's very powerful to see just how much elbow grease people are willing to apply to these questions. You, you have said in some of your writing that the issue of global warming is theological or a religious issue at its core. Can you say more about that? Sure, and I think I can try to relate it to what we're talking about today. Um, 
Here's an interesting set of statistics compiled by an evangelical pollster named George Barna a few years ago. He was trying to assay the, uh, uh, the biblical literacy of American Christians, and 85% of ourselves in this country call ourselves Christians. As is often the case when we ask questions about what we know, the answers were slightly dispiriting. Only half of people could remember the names of two of the four Gospels. You know, 12% of Americans are quite firm in their belief that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife, um, um, <laughs> so on. But the, the really depressing one was this. 75% of Americans think that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is to be found in the Bible, instead of being sort of Ben Franklin channeling Aesop, you know. Um, um, that matters because that God helps those who help themselves is the sort of pithy uh, uh, summation of the kind of American individualist creed that's come to dominate our lives. And it's the precise opposite of the gospel message. Jesus, you know, over and over again asked what it was he was about, just kept saying, you know, guys, love your neighbors as yourselves. The exact opposite in the kind of profound message of community. Global warming is the perfect example of not loving your neighbors. The 4% the of us in this country produce 25% of the world's CO2. The first and most profound victims of that are people around the world living close to the margin who will be drowned out, uh, uh, you know, flooded out, uh, uh, whose fields will be, uh, become so arid they can't be worked, all and all, and none of them are doing anything to cause this problem. None of them are burning fossil fuels in quantities large enough really even to measure. We've never figured out a way to do more damage to our neighbors. And hence, you know, our way of life, I think, is, be is becoming not just a theological problem, but maybe the theological problem. In, in You're organizing for the April 14th rallies around the country at noon in St. Paul at our capital and other capitals around the country and on various church steps uh, mentioned at, is it stepitup07.org? Stepitup07.org. Uh, what kind of response are you getting from the local religious communities to this invitation to participate in a new movement? One of the best pieces of news in the last few years is that there finally is a religious environmental movement, which didn't exist. I mean, I, many of us have been trying to kindle it for a while, and it's finally really started to happen. It's happening across faith communities, most profoundly maybe in the last year in evangelical communities. This is the first issue on which the evangelical hierarchy has begun to break with the orthodoxy of the sort of political right wing in this country. They've taken courageous steps outside their comfort zone to call for real action soon, and in a certain sense are, 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 are putting to shame those of us in other uh, traditions who have talked the predictable good game but need to do a lot more. I just came back from uh, helping launch a, uh, a, a march across Massachusetts uh, uh, that happened uh, last, uh, last couple of weeks by people of every religious dimension you could imagine sleeping each night in churches. It was a good sign for me of this awakening that's starting to happen. Thank you very much, Bill McKibben, for being here on the Town Hall Forum.